Tēnā koutou, no mai, haere mai. Good evening and welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Tonight, Jacinda Ardern on progress, polls and being Prime Minister. Are you personally in this for the long haul? If you win re-election, will you be here for the, for the three-year term? And then 5G, the next generation of mobile technology is here. If you don't have it yet, you soon will. But for all its potential, there's also concern at whether 5G could impact our health and the environment. We don't know what's true and what's not, and we'd like to know more. The government's not telling us anything. No one's telling us anything. What have we heard? Oh, we're wrong about 5G. That's it. That's all we've heard. That story soon, but first to the polls. Labor will be hoping the energy of its annual conference and a commitment to fix our infrastructure deficit will be enough to push more supporters the party's way. Tonight's One News poll was taken before the big spending announcements of the weekend, but it shows the main parties remain in a very tight race. If it was an election, National, with the help of ACT, would edge the government parties out. But have a quick look at the numbers. To the party vote, and National remains strong on 46%, down 1%. Labor's also down 1% to 39%. The Greens hang on to 7%. New Zealand First registers at 4%. ACT is up to 2 But, and this is so interesting, 17% of those people asked don't know or refused to answer. As for the preferred Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern has slipped to 36%. Simon Bridges is up to 10%. The Labour Party conference at the weekend was an opportunity for party faithful to take stock. I went to Whanganui and sat down with the Prime Minister on the stage of the glorious Whanganui Opera House to assess the government's performance thus far. And I began by asking about those latest poll results. For the first time under this government, Labour has registered under 40%. And so I asked Jacinda Ardern why she thinks that is. First of all, it's uh, whether or not we take as a, a single snapshot in time any one poll. And one of the things that I've lived by since we've been uh, in office is making sure that you never fixate. I think that's a dangerous place to be, fixation on polls, because ultimately our job is to, is to govern, to make the best decisions that we can. I do care what people think, though. Of course, I need to. I need to hear the feedback about how people think we're tracking. And for that, yes, I'll look at polls, but I'll also look at letters, conversations I have. And in that sense, I believe um, our coalition government is doing really well. I know there's only so much you can read into polls, but yeah. we poll consistently, and yeah. the trend shows your government on a bit of a slip. Yeah, and a poll last week showed our government on a rise. That's not from a consistent poll. Why do you think this trend shows a slip? And I have a poll that comes to me every two weeks that shows something completely different. What does that Look, show? Not saying, of course, that I don't hear feedback. We need to, of course, hear what voters think and what they feel. Uh, and what I consistently hear is people saying, you are making progress. Look, will there be areas where we need to do more? Yes. Will there be infrastructure investments we need to keep making? Yes, of course. But overall, the overwhelming sense I get from people is they are seeing that progress, they see what our intent is, and they support us to keep going. What sort of oversight will there be for the spend in schools? Well, the Ministry of Education, of course, already plays a role. And I think what's really important um, to keep in mind is that all schools have a rolling 10-year plan. Within that plan, they're supported to prioritise the areas that they need to invest in. So as you can imagine, up the top of the things that make our schools safe environments to be in. Then you'll have things like, you know, removing 
uh, coal boilers and so on. And they then cascade down from most important then to a little further down the list. And the Ministry of Education supports them in those plans and also supports them as they do that work. You will be uh, producing your broader spending plans in a couple of weeks. What are you trying to achieve with this investment? We're trying to rebuild New Zealand. You know, when we, when we came into office, we already saw need. You know, I don't have to remind people of what was uh, happening with the likes of Middlemore. And yes, you know, by and large, people were saying, OK, we, we in New Zealand, we pride ourselves on our core uh, government services on our health and education system. But what I was hearing from people who were working on the inside was that there was the erosion. We knew that coming in. We have increased investment there, but we know we need to keep going. And so what we're looking to do is actually make the most of the time that we have right now. There is never a better time to invest than what we have at the moment. Our debt is low, particularly relative to other countries. The cost to borrow is incredibly low. Keeping in mind when we came in, it was more like 3%. Now it's, you know, roughly just over 1%. Now is the time to rebuild New Zealand. Why have you waited until now, though? Ah. Debt has been relatively cheap for the last couple of years. You've been returning surpluses. Why wait until now? We haven't. Uh, in fact, you look at health. But for this specific spending, this, oh. this increase? Well, actually, keeping in mind, of course, you know, we had a $1.2 billion uh, increase for capital for just for our education system um, already. But this is unplanned. We've already this, you've been... brought this spending forward. No, this is part of a cascade of work we've been doing. So this is building on the investment we're already making. Keeping in mind, as I say, 1.2 billion for uh, our education system. We've done similar for health. We've already announced uh, our rebuild or new build program for Dunedin, for Taranaki, for Hamilton. So this is to keep on going this with that investment. Absolutely, but this is spending that has been brought forward. Am I, am I incorrect in that? Well, the way I'd characterise it, for instance, for schools, mm. is that they always have a program that's sitting for there. For sure, but, you, but you, are, you are giving them the money now, right? This, is, this isn't money that you had necessarily allocated at this time. You've brought this spending forward. Oh, as so, I, again, so as I say, schools always have a 10-year plan. Absolutely. And what we're doing is saying, look, rather than just waiting uh, year on year, we are already making significant investments. The next part of our program, we think, is then to boost the work that they're able to do on that capital maintenance program that they have. So, so, so I so see this as part of our wider, ongoing infrastructure program. Keeping in mind, Jack, we're only 24 months in. And so this is, I think, just sits within what has been a concerted effort by us to get rid of the deficit. You get what I'm saying here though, if this was always part of your plan, why can't you tell us at this stage exactly where you'll be spending the money? You mean for the, forgive me, you're talking about the overall yeah. infrastructure package because it's going to be part of um, the announcements that the finance minister makes as part of the Hayufu, so that's why it will be done then. Is the economy slowing more than you thought? Of course, you can't predict the international environment that you're in, I've, and I've never tried. Um, I think what we have to be clear about is that New Zealand, of course, doesn't sit in isolation. We're a trading nation, and I think when our business community looks at the environment about whether or not they feel mm. the security to invest, they're looking offshore at that global environment. Now, relative to others, we're doing well. Our growth rate is higher than most of the countries we compare ourselves to. Our unemployment rate is low and our wages are, are growing, outstripping uh, the cost of living in some of the highest levels we've seen in a decade. So our fundamentals are strong. Added to that, we believe, are extra things that we can do to continue to grow our economy, though, and this kind of investment is part of that.
I want to reflect on some of your words as we assess your time in government so far. We have come in to deliver transparent, transformative mm. and compassionate government. Those mm. are your words, that's your promise. Yes. Have you delivered on that promise? I believe we have. You know, when I think back about some of the things that I am most proud of of the last two years, the things that will endure long after us, you know, the landmark zero carbon legislation, an agreement with our um, primary producers, our farmers, that we will measure and reduce emissions farm by farm, that makes us world leaders. No one else in the world is doing that. On child poverty, very few countries have the kind of legislation we do where we're gonna report on how we're tracking for our kids and we're on track to meet our targets. Can I ask you about child poverty? You are the Minister for Child Poverty Reduction, of course. In February, 10 months ago, the Welfare Expert Advisory Group recommended your government immediately raises core benefits up to 47%. Why haven't you? And what we did in our last budget instead was actually the, one of the things the child, um, Children's Commissioner said would be the most transformative thing that we could do to reduce child poverty, and that was index benefits to wages. Now That amounts to $11 on average per cumulative. week by 2023. And had we been doing that uh, some 10 years ago, we would not have the growth that we have seen in child poverty. Please, back, if to, I that, can, back please, to that question though. If I can finish. We've also increased the family tax credit. We've introduced a best start payment, which is uh, going to all families when they have their first child and extends based on income to children when they're age two and three. We extended paid parental leave. We got rid of a sanction that was punitively punishing sole parents who didn't name the father of their child and impacting on children. We introduced a winter energy payment that went to families on benefits. Overall, the impact of our policies will mean that between 50 and 74,000 children will be lifted out of poverty. I do not shy away from that. Okay. That is a huge difference than what we've seen on okay. before. It's now, not perfect, now we, we aren't going to get data by, by, your, by your measurements until February. That's uh, right. You, you called on the Children's Commissioner. This is what Andrew Beecroft said. This is how he assesses your response to the Welfare Working Group's recommendations. Quote, weak, supine, passive. We can't fiddle while Rome burns, while 100,000 children remain in disadvantage. Change and action is urgently required. I'll go back to that question. Why haven't you increased benefits when that was one of the core recommendations from your own working group? And as I said, uh, we have done some significant, enormous, $5.5 billion worth of investment is it, is into it? the incomes of families with children in the greatest need. I also know that in that same interview with the Children's Commissioner, he credited the changes that we had made in the winter energy payment on family tax credit, the changes that we had started on. What he acknowledged was we have to keep going on, on that. I do agree. He says you're fiddling around the edges. That's, that's what he, he says. Me meanwhile, said, let's no, take... Jake, I'll also add, he also said that we had had transformative generational change in politics on the issues of child poverty. Are we perfect? No. Do we have more to do? Yes. But I do not accept that what we've done has not been significant. It has. Okay. Let's go to the words for people on the front line. Um, this is from the head of the Christchurch City Mission, which records a 20% increase in demand year on year. Quote, things were much better under the previous government. We're underfunded. The poverty we see is worse. You were the Minister for Child Poverty I Reduction. I absolutely reject that statement. So why, why would he a say statement that? A statement to claim that a government that's invested 5.5 billion 
has cancelled tax cuts so we could instead focus on those so why would in the he most say that? This is not a political agent. This is someone on the front line. This is someone you respect. Yeah, why, you, why would, you, you why would, would he say that? I, again, can't assume that you've necessarily taken that in context, but the idea that what we have done when we got rid of a blanket tax cut that would have given you and I a tax break instead of focusing on those in the greatest need in New Zealand would somehow have been better off under the last government. I'm sorry, things, I just reject that. Things were much better under the previous government. The poverty we see is worse. That is a damning assessment. AAAP uh, is facing their biggest demand ever. They say they've seen very little in the way of transformation from your government. Hardship grants have gone up two-thirds on this time last Jeff, year. I'm happy to get into some of the detail around things like hardship grants. For instance, one of the criticisms that we had of the last government was our concern that people were not accessing the support that they needed. And so I think, unfortunately, it's not sufficient to say simply because more people are accessing those grants that that is indicative solely of greater need. It will also be indicative of people actually getting the help they need when they need it. So I think there is that issue there. We've made it easier. We've made the application and the process of accessing hardship grants easier. That's because that's what our system exists for. I don't want people sleeping in cars. I don't want people mm. uh, needing to go to food banks when we should be able to give them the support they need through our core government services. And so hardship grants will be indicative of that. You reject these statements, but these are statements from people on the front lines of poverty, right? From this Christchurch City Mission, just hang on a moment, from Auckland Action Against Poverty, from the Children's Commissioner. Is it kind to keep core benefit levels below the No, well, line? I will correct you there. I reject the idea that those families, those low and middle income families would have been better off under the last government. I do reject that. And I actually reject it with fact. On those other okay. areas, it is absolutely the Children's Commissioner's job to continue to advocate for children, and it is our job to keep acting for children, and I believe we're doing that. OK, but can they deliver on infrastructure, given their biggest building project so far, Kiwi Build, failed to meet the government's election promises? The rest of my interview with the Prime Minister is up after the break. And then later, he's a gay, millennial, Harvard grad military veteran, and he could be the Democrat to take on Donald Trump. Rebecca Wright meets Mayor Pete Buttigieg. How does it feel to flip from underdog to frontrunner? Well, it's very encouraging, but uh, we're not going to let it go to our heads. Kia ora e te whanau. you're back with Q&A and my sit down with the Prime Minister as she wraps up her government's second year in power. Labor's promising to invest big in infrastructure, but since we last spoke with the Prime Minister, the party's had to reset its signature Kiwi Build programme after it failed to come close to early targets. Housing issues in New Zealand persist. Rents are forecast to reach new highs next year, while the housing shortage could hit 150,000. So I asked Jacinda Ardern, where is the transformation that was promised? on housing, you know, keeping in mind when we came in across the board, you know, whether it was what was happening in public housing, the fact that the last government was selling off state houses when we needed to be building them, right through to our first home buyers and the rental market, we needed to work across the board and we, and we have. You know, I'll start with homelessness. We've expanded the number of housing first places to help those who are chronically homeless. And that program is working. We've also invested millions in trying to stop people falling into homelessness in the first place, which is significant because then it means that children, for instance, aren't moving from school to school. On public housing places, they've been increased. Our state building and uh, government building program, we've got now roughly over 3,000 additional houses that we're going to be able to place people in or already have. 
Now that is a massive turnaround and all up, Jack, we're building more houses than any government since the 1970s. We've also seen first home buyers increase. It's gone from 18% to over 20%, 24% um, from memory of the market now made up of first home buyers. And the Auckland housing market, you ask anyone in Auckland? They'll say the heat has come out. Yes, of course, we want greater affordability. That's why we're working on things like progressive home ownership. But things like the foreign buyer ban, they have made a difference. Since we last spoke, you've reset the KiwiBuild policy. Mm. You've scrapped the targets. You say they were creating perverse incentives. They were. But give us an estimate. How many of the 16,000 homes you originally promised would be built in your first term will be completed? And we're time? putting out a tracker of how we're doing, and of course it's undershot so, our so, aspirations. So in a, a year from now, how many Kiwi build houses will be completed? That would be a question for, for the minister who has her finger this, on this the current a, construction. This is a central policy going into the last election. Building you, you must and have housing an idea. New Zealanders was a central policy, and we will keep building until that job is done. So give us a rough estimate of where Jack, we should be in a year's time. we've already been clear that it's not going to meet the expectations that we had, but nor did we feel like the settings were right. So when we did the reset, we also looked at whether or not that alone was sufficient for our first home buyers. But, but how, and how a lot of, voters meet your If success? I could just complete my answer, please. And one of the things we realised that actually that Kiwi Build, yes, was one part of the issue, but the ability to overcome that deposit for those first home buyers was another. So instead, actually, we looked at doing things like saying, well, why don't let's actually take 400 million and invest it in progressive home ownership. So Kiwi Build in itself is now a much more expanded principle around assisting first home buyers with every part, the cost of that first home, but also the barriers to getting into but it. But look at those fundamental measures. Rents, house prices and the housing shortage are all growing in size. You have promised transformation so how should voters, a year from now, measure success? Jack, again, you can't stop what you will see as small growths and what we want them to 4. be, 4. actually. 4.2% year on year. It's not outstripping a place where people can afford wages them. Wages have increased 2% in the last year. That wages so have increased more than double. In Wellington, rents are increasing four times faster than Wages, wages. have increased over 4% increases and impacts of things like the minimum wage increases we've introduced and, of course, those public sector so, settlements so have made a significant a year from impact. Now? Jack, for me, like, we could rattle off a whole lot of stats, you and I, but ultimately... But those core measures, though, rents, house prices and the housing shortage, all growing at the moment, so a year from now, you won't give us a number as to the houses you will have built under KiwiBuild. How should voters measure... I've given years? you an, uh, the impact we are having across the housing spectrum, and it will never be about one part. But, Jack, I know that cumulatively the impact this government is having is making a difference in people's lives. Now, you and I can rattle off every stat under the sun, but for me what will be most important are the stories that I hear from people every single day. I know from the letters. A girl stopped me in the street last week to say, thank you for the heat pump my landlord put in because of the healthy homes work you've done. The woman who wrote to me to say, I bought socks and blankets and ran my heater this winter because of the winter energy payment. Are we perfect? No. But this is a government that has shown the kind of values that we believe are most important to New Zealand, and our job is to keep going. Winston Peters, he's openly pitching his party as the, quote, handbrake for unsound ideas. Those are your ideas he's talking about. Is he stopping the pace of transformation? No, no. no. Um, and actually, I want to reflect on the fact that in the last two years, we have made enormous changes. 
and we've done it as three. What, what does he mean by that then? What does he mean by the handbrake for unsound ideas? Oh, you would need to ask him, but I doubt he'd say that any of the things we've passed have been unsound. He supported them. And we are a three-party government. Ultimately, we represent the majority of New Zealanders. It's about the so what, haven't passed, what we generate um, is reflective of probably the majority of New Zealanders' opinions. If polling remains at the level it's at now, with New Zealand First or the Greens, under 5%, will you consider a cup of tea style deal in any electorate? <laughs> I don't get into hypotheticals, but I also, I have to say, am pretty sceptical of polls that ever uh, underestimate the Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters. Have you had that conversation with either party? No, but nor do I feel the need to. Would, would you, you know, rule actually, it out? My job right now is to rule the government that we're in, not to mm. speculate on what will happen after uh, uh, voters make their own decisions. Mode, okay. can, you, can you rule out a cup of tea deal with either New I Zealand actually don't know what you mean by party. a cup of tea deal. Well, can, you, can, you out, already... can you rule out effectively having a Labour candidate stand oh. back or stand down in any electorate to make it easier for one of those parties to have an election? Two points. Already we've demonstrated that we can work with New Zealand First and the Greens. We already are. And we're doing it well. The second point, Labour makes a point of running in seats across the country to give our voters the choice of voting for our candidates. And that's been something that we've done really consistently. But also you reflect that New Zealand First doesn't seek those out either. They have their own principles and philosophies that they stick to in that regard. But ultimately, you know, I don't feel the need to get into speculation for the aftermath of the election. It's a decision for voters. They decide what they want the representation to be and then we make a government work off the back of it. Are you personally in this for the long haul? If you win re-election, will I, you be here for I the, the three-year term? I wouldn't be right here right now if I wasn't. I wouldn't have been in politics for 10 years if I wasn't. I'm here to make a difference, um, and that's what we're doing. Are you prepared to be a three-term Prime Minister? I'm prepared to stay as long as people will have me stay. You said this would be the year of delivery. I'll go back to those original words. Transparency, transformation and compassion. For voters who feel you haven't delivered on those promises, what is your message? Well, I don't want to do a two-minute style, three-minute style, ten-minute style the runoff of everything that we've done, but all I know is that I am proud of what we've done. I know there's more to do, um, but I stand by the progress that we've made. It's been huge. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern making a strong pitch for voters to keep the faith. Let's find out if economist Cameron Bagri is convinced. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Good evening. Well, we don't have a lot of detail at this stage about the government's plans to accelerate investment in infrastructure. We're going to find out more in a couple of weeks. But from what we know so far, will it work? Well, we'll wait until we get the detail. But, but I guess at the moment we can just answer a, a pretty basic question. You know, should we be boosting infrastructure-style investment at this juncture of the cycle? And the answer is hell yes. As the Prime Minister noted, interest rates are low. We've got infrastructure deficits. Government debt is low. You know, that's called a winning trifecta, and Christmas is just around the corner, so let's get on with it. Yeah, but we've also got an economy at the moment that's underperforming. We're not growing as fast as what we should be. You know, there's scope here for what's called fiscal policy, which is just government policy, to, to pull a few levers, you know, push a little bit of money into the economic system to get the economy back up towards 3% GDP growth, because at the moment we're around 2%, and that's underperforming. That's soft. When you say it's underperforming, are you measuring that against other countries, are global headwinds to blame? Let's sort of measure it against what we call as you know, potential growth, or that sort of theoretical mm. rate of growth at which New Zealand should sort of grow at in a normal economic environment. And that rate's around sort of 25 
to 3%. So we slowed into that sort of range, and, and now we're, we're well below that. We're at 2%, and it looks like we're going to dip a little bit below 2%. The Reserve Bank stepped up to the plate. Yeah, they've been mm. cutting the official cash rate to try to put a bit of juice into the economic system. Yeah, Adrian Orr has been out there quite vocal about needing a bit of a mate in the form of fiscal policy coming to the party. Well, it looks like fiscal policy via more infrastructure spend is going to come to the party, and let's hope it you know, gets the economy growing back up towards 25 to 3%. So what sort of impact will this spend in schools have? Well, I think that's pretty trivial, to be perfectly honest. If you look at you know, what was in the 2019 budget for schools, you know, the schools capital program was about $1.2 billion, which is, which is a big sum, except it was spread over 10 years. And so it's about $120 million a year. Uh, it looks like there's going to be $400 million pumped in in the next sort of couple of years. That's sort of you know, getting a little bit more juice into the system. Is that an overall big number within the scheme of an economy that's sort of a, a $300 billion economy? The answer is no. Uh, will it make a little bit of a difference? Will it turn the needle in the right direction? So we'll take it. Where should the money be spent? I think the top priority there at the moment has got to be roading. You know, transport infrastructure across New Zealand. I think the government made a pretty big mistake where they pilfered money out of the highway network, you know, wound back the roads of national significance. You know, we want to get a productivity dividend. We want to get a growth dividend. We've got to get that infrastructure right, and roading's at the epicentre of that. How much should the government be spending? Oh. The issue here is not just about you know, what's, what's the ideal number, because there is no ideal number, Jack. Yeah? And, and, and the sector's capacity constraints of finding the workers to do the work is going to be a bit of an economic problem uh, in the first place. But what we are, big issue going forward is going to be we are after quality spend, not quantity spend. And that's where there's going to be a few question marks, because what we know is that the year of delivery, as you pointed out, well, it hasn't gone well. You know, the likes of KiwiBuild has not been that successful. Now, the government's talking a pretty big game in regard to what we're going to be doing in the infrastructure mm -hmm. arena. They've got to back up that economic game with the ability to execute around it. And we're going to be going through the details when we get the half-year economic and fiscal update. What does that actually mean? When you, when you say they need to execute, when you, when you talk about delivery like that, what does that mean in terms of nuts and bolts? Well, I guess if I have a look at it, as we speak, the, the government is borrowing money to invest. So mm. government debt increased from 57 to 60 billion. Yeah, this is net debt between June and October this year. So that's $3 billion put on the credit card. Now, debt levels are still low, so it's not a problem. But we want to be borrowing and investing and getting a dividend on the other side. Now, that dividend doesn't have to be a cash dividend. It doesn't have to be an economic dividend. It can be a social dividend. But we need metrics to be, to be able to benchmark where the performance we were actually making progress or not, because the budget projections had yeah, debt going from $57 billion to $70 billion. You know, I suspect when we get the half-year economic and fiscal update numbers, yeah, debt debt's probably going to be up around 75 Now, 75 is not a problem, yeah, but there's a big increase in regard to $18 billion. Yeah, we're going to be after some accountability mm. structures to make sure we're getting value for money in regard to where that money is being spent, because it is being borrowed. To be really clear, how, how much debt should we be comfortable taking on? Maximum. It's a moving target. Yeah, is there anything magical about 20% of GDP? The answer is no. Yeah, New Zealand could really easily go to 25, yeah, probably 30%. 
that the average level of debt across the OECD, if you look at governments, is around 80% of GDP. Mm. Yeah, so we are absolutely squeaky clean at the lower end of the spectrum. But we need to be squeaky clean because we've got low levels of government debt, but we've got extraordinarily high levels of private debt. Mm. You know, so you know, we wouldn't want to see that government debt level accelerate too sharply. Yeah, the, and I guess the, what the government should be doing is prepared to spend money when the economy is underperforming at present. We've got those deficits. But if the economy starts to look a little bit sharper in two to three years, you've got to have the discipline to be able to wind it back on the other side. I know there's no such thing as consensus amongst economists, but are we somewhat close to consensus amongst economists on this? Yeah, I think there is broad agreement that the government could be doing a lot more to help monetary policy out. They could certainly be doing an awful lot more to help New Zealand go through the sort of fabled economic transition. Yeah, we're dishing out a few hits to mm. some sectors on one side as we sort of address the social side of the ledger. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm in broad agreement with the spirit of government policy, but they've got a hit plan. They don't have a growth plan. And what we're looking for in regard to whether this infrastructure program is going to have semblances of a growth plan about it. Let's um, consider the opposition's uh, response. National has criticised the government for borrowing, saying uh, they've, they've wastefully spent um, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars so far. Do they have a point? Well, we'll see where it goes. Mm. You know, what we've seen to date in regard to what's going on in regard to KiwiBuild, well, that's a dog with fleas. You know, let's be brutally honest about about that one. You know, I agree with a lot of the other pushes we're seeing in regard to the social side of the ledger. Yeah, and Judge Beecroft is absolutely right in regard to what needs to go on in regard to fixing child poverty. It's a, it's a disgrace across this country. Mental health is diabolical. We've got to be throwing money into that, that pot as well. You know, but we shouldn't be afraid. Both sides of the political fence should not be afraid to spend money if we're getting value for it on the other side of the fence. The million-dollar question is, that are we going to get value and what's the space? The million-dollar slash $10 billion. Cameron Bagri, as always, thanks for your time this evening. Grant Robertson set to make that announcement on December 11th, and we will be interviewing the Finance Minister on our final show for Q&A this year on December 16th. We want to hear what you think of our interview with Jacinda Ardern and her message this evening. Has the government got the right plan? Perhaps you have some ideas for what they should spend that money on. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can also post on Facebook or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Up next, these cell phone towers are delivering the next generation of mobile technology in Aotearoa. But 5G is also sparking concern about its impact on human health. We'll tell you what the evidence says after the break. Hoki Mayano, welcome back. Last week, Spark rolled out 5G in six towns in Te Waiponamu, the South Island. And in the next few weeks, Vodafone will launch its 5G mobile network in four cities. But in the regions, there's still a fair bit of opposition to 5G, among people worried about potential effects on human health and the environment. The telco's response, get off social media and look at the science. Fina Owen reports. They call us, you know, tin hat people. We're called names. You're a loony if you're questioning. Nutters. Next to the Alexandra Bowling Club is one of Spark's towers upgraded to 5G, which has been trialled in the town. Former District Councillor Victoria Bonham. You don't have a choice yeah. on it. it it's, uh, it comes into your yard whether you like it or not. It's, you know, it, it invades your house. It's a home invasion. 
my children and my grandchildren are guinea pigs for this rollout of 5G without all the information. Hey, we live here. Ask us first, please. Lawyer Sue Gray, who points out she also has a science degree, doesn't live here, but she's one of a handful of people touring the country, talking to communities from Kerikiri to Invercargill about 5G. People all over the world are coming together like us to ask questions about 5G. People all around New Zealand are really concerned about the rollout of 5G because there's been no consultation and they're concerned about health, they're concerned about security and they're concerned about just human rights issues. When we caught up with her, she was speaking in Alexandra, the first town in New Zealand to get 5G broadband. But why Alexandra? An old rural service town with a blossom festival, gold mining heritage, oh, and a space institute called Zera. With $15 million government funding, via satellite observation, it carries out work like identifying environmental problems and illegal fishing. So because the Space Institute here downloads satellite imagery, it's heavily reliant on fast internet speed. And it was the first company to hook up with Spark's 5G trial. Up until this point, we've really struggled with the connectivity here. It's been a tough couple years of us trying to get the business going. Um, but with this high-speed connectivity, now we can take what took hours and turn it into minutes. Are you worried about 5G here? In no, not at all. I think you'd probably have more, more um, things floating around in your house with the microwave running. Yeah, there's probably concerns, but certainly not to the extent of what some people are making out. What I've only heard on Facebook there's a lot of scaremongering going around, especially on social media. The most important source of information would be the Ministry of Health or the World Health Organisation, and that's where we suggest people get their information, rather than social media. We wouldn't launch anything that wasn't safe, and there is a lot of misinformation out there. Last week, Spark announced that 5G broadband was going live in five more South Island towns. In those six towns, we're actually using uh, spectrum that we've already had in those towns for 4G. So we've repurposed the 4G spectrum and turned it into 5G. And there is nothing for anyone to be concerned about. So uh, we are going to be uh, launching in a matter of days, not weeks. Yes, Vodafone will soon roll out 5G mobile in Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch and Queenstown. That means we're going to be um, livening up uh, over 100 4G cell sites. We've upgraded them to 5G and that will make New Zealand the 15th country in the world to switch on a 5G mobile network. Of course you have to buy the 5G phones. It's expected in Queenstown at least, many tourists will arrive with them. They are cranking into life today. Lots of pollen coming in, lots of nectar. Over in Frankton, Nick Cameron runs a honey business for tourists. He's quite close to a cell phone tower and wonders about its effect on his bees when 5G's up and running. You're just hearing negatives about how it's affecting uh, bees' abilities to um, you know, leave the hive and find it again. It's affecting their, their navigation systems and perhaps for hives that are really close to a station, uh, a 5G station, it's affecting the health of the bees. So, and, you know, we don't know what's true and what's not, and we'd like to know more. The government's not telling us anything. No-one's telling us anything. What have we heard? Oh, we're wrong about 5G. That's it. That's all we've heard. 
5G's rolling out. Well, come on, give us a, a bit of information. With a flurry of public meetings and the 5G rollouts, the government appears to have recently stepped up its efforts to get 5G information out to the public, putting the chief science advisor's report on 5G in the Herald today. The Minister of Health declined to comment for this story and referred us to the Health Ministry, who sent us a statement about 5G, saying the currently available scientific evidence makes it extremely unlikely that there will be any adverse effects on human or environmental health. But the Ministry went on to say that New Zealand needs to continue to monitor the risks of exposure and ensure that they are within the international safety standard, as well as keeping a close watch on any new research. So at the moment all the navigation, antenna and everything, it's all on track? It's Everything, intact, Everything's on track, yeah. yeah. And come the Vodafone rollout, beekeeper Nick Cameron will be keeping a close watch on his bees. We'll be watching bees really closely come, come December, coming rollout, and uh, just you know monitoring how these colonies react to, to, you know, to this change to 5G. Fina Owen reporting there. We're in the US state of Iowa after the break. You're going to be hearing a lot more about this Midwest farming state over the next few months. It has the first Democratic primary of the election in February. And that's why the momentum of Democrat Pete Buttigieg in Iowa is drawing so much interest. We'll have more on that next. Kia ora Tefano, welcome back. Former Veep Joe Biden has taken his campaign to win the Democratic nomination to Iowa. He'll spend eight days working through as many counties as he can. Why Iowa? Why Iowa? It holds the first primary in next year's election where Democrats face off to win their party's candidacy. It's also a state where Biden's rival, Pete Buttigieg, has taken the lead, according to local polling. We sent US correspondent Rebecca Wright to find out why the millennial mayor appears to have growing support in the Hawkeye state. Iowa, in America's Midwest, famous for its corn, oats, soybeans and for its outsized influence in picking presidential candidates as the first state to vote in primary races. And we're here because recently there's been a small political earthquake, the first real upset in this Democratic primary race. Mayor Pete Buttigieg has pulled off a stunning ascent, flipping from rank outsider to leading in both Iowa and New Hampshire. How does it feel to flip from underdog to front runner? Well, it's very encouraging, but uh, we're not going to let it go to our heads. There's still a long way to go before the first caucus. And we're with his campaign as it swings through small towns that swung to Trump in 2016. I think everybody could say this here. He just has a easy-speaking, knowledgeable light about him. Well, he's a moderate, and I think some of the people in the Democratic Party are just a little bit too progressive. What excites you about Pete as a candidate? Um, I have loved the interviews I've seen about him. I love how he speaks. I love his calm demeanor. I think he's very brilliant. I think he's honest. I think he's patriotic and he's dedicated. Pete Buttigieg describes himself as a Maltese American Episcopalian gay millennial mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Harvard educated, a Rhodes Scholar. He's also a veteran who served in Afghanistan and he speaks eight languages. His campaign has caught fire recently, despite or perhaps because of his lack of Washington experience. 
We saw what the Republicans did when they were tired of politicians. We saw who they elected. I think Democrats are tired of career politics, too. There's definitely a buzz about this millennial mayor from Indiana. We're in a small town called Atlantic. Around 6,000 people live here. But on a Monday afternoon, there's probably 200 that have turned out to see what it's all about. At just 37, Buttigieg is the youngest candidate in his as a campaign promising generational change. He's also pitching himself as a healer of this deeply polarised nation. I'm running to be that president who can pick up the pieces, gather us together and make sure that we come out of that process of rising to meet our biggest challenges more unified and less divided than we were on the way in. That's what this campaign is about. Right now, he's nine points ahead of the big names in this race, Biden, Bernie and Warren. And in a CNN poll just a few days ago, he is surging nationwide as well. 11% of Americans would vote for him today, a six-point jump since October. What did you think? I thought he was fantastic. Um, he, he does understand how divided our country is right now um, on the basis of race, religion, um, age. Interest here in Iowa about Pete Buttigieg. Uh, it's clear that he is a candidate who can think on his feet. He doesn't seem to feel pressure, and people are interested in his story, who he is, how the mayor of uh, a small town in Indiana came to be the front runner in these two really crucial early voting states. But he does have some big challenges ahead in terms of his viability as the Democratic candidate. Iowa and New Hampshire are overwhelmingly white states, and while we find thousands lining up to meet him at his next event, Pete Buttigieg is flatlining elsewhere with African-American and Hispanic voters, and it will be impossible for him to win the party's nomination without diversifying his base. Nationwide, he's doing well. He's clearly doing well here in Iowa, but in his hometown, uh, I don't think he's doing as well with the African-American vote. In South Bend, there is a lack of trust between Buttigieg and the African-American community after several missteps by the mayor. Surprisingly, too, as the millennial candidate, Buttigieg is so far failing to attract youth. And a question remains about whether America is ready to vote for its first openly gay presidential candidate. Don't give a twit about him being gay. I, uh, and I'm not gay, but, but I don't care about that. may not come out right now, but people at the voting booth, at the voting polls, they may um, not vote for him, and that's really sad. And Buttigieg's campaign has also been criticised as being vague by more progressive Democrats, and he is playing it safe. But that's also the point. He's hoping to provide an alternative to the more radical politics of Bernie and Warren. We are calling out to progressives. We are calling out to moderates. We are calling out to what I like to call future former Republicans, because I know there are a lot in this room ready for something different. Come join us. Nationwide, Joe Biden is still leading the Democrat field, but his support is slipping. And riding alongside him in the center lane, Buttigieg is picking up pace. He's hoping to capture Democrats' imaginations as a fresh face. But what is your strategy if you land in that ring of fire with the president during an election campaign? Well, I'm certainly not afraid to stand up to a bully, but it's going to take more than just confronting this president in order to lead the country forward. We have to not only defeat him, but make sure every voter understands what's next. And my job is to answer what I think is the central question of any election, which is how will my life be different if you become president uh, compared to one of your competitors? And that's the focus of our message. 
That is our US correspondent, Rebecca Wright, reporting from on the road in Iowa. Stay with us on Q&A. We've had a lot of feedback on my interview with the Prime Minister. Were you convinced by Labor's message? That's next. Kia ora. welcome back. Your feedback on our interview with Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Corey Hibbard tweeted, Biggest increase to school property funding in quarter of a century, leaving a mark, tackling long-term issues. Pete emailed, Why on earth would you give infrastructure funding based on the school role, which has no correlation to need for repairs and maintenance? Wendy in Kirikirirua Hamilton emailed, Pensioners' fortnightly allowance isn't keeping up with the cost of living and most pensioners can't do anything to earn more. Howard Baldwin tweeted, Jacinda Ardern, long on anecdote and short on hard data tonight. That's disappointing. We will continue the conversation on our Facebook page. Search NZQ&A. Tonight is up next. Thanks for watching. And nā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. We'll see you next Monday evening at 930 Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.